Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this Sabbath School from Home podcast. Very glad that you have decided to spend some time with us uh, discussing what we hope to be interesting ideas. My name's Cameron. G'day, I'm Ken. And I'm Luke. I almost forgot that I go after Ken. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Lachlan. And those of you that regularly listen to this podcast will recall I had a cough that was plaguing me last time we spoke and the cough has not gone away. So I'll be doing my best to contain it. But every now and again, it may be the moving of the Holy Spirit to cause me to stop talking. (laughs) No, good. I mean, not good. We'll cut that out in the end. Well, it, it Um, it will, of course, be. Uh, the movement of your breath or spirit. Uh, so uh, you're quite <laughs> ah, right. Very nice. Um, okay, so this week's lesson is on the mark of the beast. And um, I wish to share only two observations about this. Uh, one of them is, and uh, I respect the fact that a serious discussion can be had on this topic, uh, but my first thought was of Victoria Flushpool in in the Adrian Plus books, who uh, whose husband Stanith was um, greatly tempted by balsa wood aircraft construction, um, a habit which he <laughs> a habit which he had he had not lost since leaving the natural and becoming one of the remnant, and of grave concern to Victoria was the fact that the number of letters in balsa wood multiplied by the age at which her saintly Aunt Maud died, was 666. Ah, uh, uh, well, it's clear that that was... Yeah. The bo- building balsa wood models yeah. uh, is the mark of the beast. It must be so. Yeah. Uh, Indeed, I, I, I had was... a... I, well, before you go on to your next one, Cam, I had yeah. a... I, I bumped into somebody uh, recently who told me that they had a unique uh, and... Um, exclusive uh, insight into the mark of the beast uh, and they were the only person in the world who understood it so um, I figure the discussion we might have is futile indeed <laughs> yeah well, it's possibly the case there's always this tension isn't there between saying the thing is tricky so it's very tricky it's a tricky thing you might not notice it but when I sh- uh, show it to you um, when I show it to you it will be obvious. You'll have no opportunity but to agree. And to me, those two sentiments are slightly at odds with one another. Um, the other observation I had was just on the on this idea of putting marks on things to denote ownership. Um, I don't know, Locke, if your kids have gone through that phase of needing their names on, on things. Um, sort of once they get old enough to write their name, there's a great temptation to have names on things. And... Um, my eldest son Oliver this week decided that he wanted a bit more privacy and he wrote a sign and put it on the door and it said, please knock on the door. And um, that was placing a sign on, on the door of some sorts. And Tanner, my eldest, went and removed the R and wrote another D double O next to it. So it said, please knock on the doo-doo. And then he drew a picture of a, of a poo. And this was incredibly funny to Tanner and very annoying to Oliver. So, you know, these are the sorts of serious issues I've had to deal with in the last few days. Um, I enjoy watching siblings discover so early in life the exact best way to push each other's buttons. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, um, we felt amongst us in our pre-recording discussion that 
it might be a more fruitful discussion to to leave the contemplation of the mark of the beast to our dear listeners and to move in a slightly different direction um if anyone is uncertain as to why we feel this way they should listen to our last podcasts for about the last five or six weeks and um all will be made clear. So, like, you had an interesting idea that I think is worth pursuing. Yeah, um, it's it's not my idea, but I was discussing in the middle of the week with a um, a man from our brass band, little community brass band, and um, <clears throat> he was discussing this this quarters subsequent lesson and wanted a little bit like the acquaintance that Ken mentioned, um, this, this gentleman wanted to share one of his own personal sorts of insights, but I actually found it incredibly um, interesting in the way that it sparked a whole series of thoughts. The, the details I have forgotten, but the key idea was that he rather suspects some connection between the apocalyptic literature of, say, Daniel and Revelation and the book of Job. And you know what? The more I have thought about it over the last couple of days, the more I think there might be something there. Mm. Uh, so would that be potentially um, uh, the bad things that happened to Job and comparing them to the bad things that happened to the faithful uh, in Revelation? Something yeah, like I that. mean, in its that's right. In its broadest strokes, both Daniel and Revelation deal with the, the reality of the faithful enduring hardship. Mm. Um, Revelation speaks of times of trouble. It speaks to some in terms of anticipation. It speaks to others in terms of the historical reality of first century Roman occupied Palestine and the Roman Empire. But regardless, it's speaking of hardships for the faithful to God um, and of temptations. It's it's a call to endure. Uh, we've we've covered these keywords already in recent episodes. And the book of Daniel does similarly. The book of Daniel is written to a people in exile. Um, Daniel cries out, how long? How long are we going to have to endure? Um, and then what do you find in Job? You find in Job a person who is introduced as one of the faithful, who then is unloaded upon with a whole range of hardships. Job, if you like, is a remnant faithful to God who endures a time of trouble. And I specifically want us to put aside the the questions of whether having extra children adequately pays one back for the loss of the first set of children, because I think in the book of Job, the, the, the picture that the book ends with is trying to speak in a language of a sort of a restoration. And that's what Daniel yearns for, and it's what Revelation finishes with. Um, and And so in some sense, not only the the details of the story, but also the trajectory. And then in a in a fascinating way, there are a few little more specific details that cross over. And uh, I might save those for once we've read a little bit and maybe discussed a little bit. But um, yeah, this guy that was chatting with, with, um, with us was actually quite taken by a couple of even more specific details that, that come up. And I, yeah. I'm, I'm quite intrigued. Yeah, to well, let's read a passage. Where shall we pick up? I think we should start at Job 1 and verse 13. After the adversary has said, well, Job will curse you, um, he goes mm. out before the Lord's presence and then it continues in this way. Uh, and one day his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their brother, the firstborn. 
And a messenger came to Job and said, The cattle were ploughing, and the she-asses grazing by them, and Sabians fell upon them and took them, and the lads they struck down by the edge of the sword, and I alone escaped to tell you. This one was still speaking when another came and said, God's fire fell from the heavens and burned among the sheep and the lads and consumed them, and I alone escaped to tell you. This one was still speaking when another came and said, Chaldeans set out in three bands and pounced upon the camels and took them, and the lads they struck down by the edge of the sword. This one was still speaking when another came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their brother the firstborn. And look, a great wind came from beyond the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died, and I alone escaped to tell you. And Job rose and tore his garment and shaved his head and fell to the earth and bowed down, and he said, Naked I came out from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken. May the Lord's name be blessed. With all this, Job did not offend, nor did he put blame on God. Well, if you ask me, that that seems pretty apocalyptic. <laughs> it certainly was for Job. Yeah. I, I mean, as I was just reading through it, it occurred to me there were uh, the three aspects. I'm sure this has been commented on before, but the three aspects of uh, of his apocalypse, if you like. There was the destruction of his economic prosperity. There was the destruction mm. of his family and social prosperity. And there was the uh, destruction of his bodily prosperity. Yes, uh, which, which is, we which haven't is, yet come to. Is in chapter two. Um, yeah. And uh, yes, no, fairly well. Um, painful boils, and he ends up sitting, sitting in ashes, scraping himself with a piece of clay, uh, pottery. Mm. Um, but yes, um, you're mentioning that the three elements which um, and it occurred to me of his prosperity that are, are destroyed. It's also interesting that there's um, kind of three types of disasters. True. Um, True. Well, there's 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 raiding from the south, and then there's fire from heaven. There's, I guess there's four, um, and then there's raiding from the the, the north, um, and then there's a, a wind. Well, yeah. typhoon. Well, I mean, this is where this is where we could just briefly skim into the slightly more specific details. Isn't it interesting that it's not just the broad strokes, but actually the the described mechanisms of the hardship bear so much resemblance to the sorts of imagery we are familiar with from our uh, from our Daniel and Revelation type apocalyptic literature. Fire from heaven, um, you know, lakes of everlasting fire, God's burning, you know. The wine, <coughs> the wine press of God's hatred and the and the fire, um, and then the Luke, you you mentioned the people. You gave a compass direction. I'm reading the New Living Translation. It mentions Sabaeans and it mentions um, Chaldean raiders, and it doesn't do that specifically with the compass directions. But in Revelation, we do know of you know kings of the north and kings of the or whether it's Revelation or Daniel ten or eleven or something like that. I now forget. But um, these. You know, there's been over the years some who have devoted large amounts of energy to trying to identify what the prophetic um, detail of the king of the north actually means in our modern world. Um, but he, he, you've got effectively at broad strokes, it's, it's foreigners and they're coming and imposing this stuff. And then the powerful wind. Um, it's interesting where again, that it, it, well, it's interesting that powerful wind comes from beyond the wilderness and. 
and it strikes the four corners of the house, which brings you very <laughs> much to that picture of the four winds, you know, the, of yes. being held yeah. back and restrained. Uh, sometimes, in, yeah. Sometimes, and then when you get just briefly, Cam, sorry, when you get to the 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 bit in chapter two that Luke um, pointed us to, that the actual physical uh, ailment, the boils on Job's skin. Of course, in in Revelation, there's an angel that pours out his bowl on the land, and an ugly and painful sores broke out on the people. Um, uh, so the again this and and it's not it's not wildly hard to understand why this this sort of encompasses most of the greatest fears not only of the ancients but kind of of any human um there's there's elements of of natural disaster there's elements of um kind of military or interpersonal type conflict and there's elements of of pain personal pain and affliction um you know the same sorts of categories are ticked in some ways by the plagues that are visited on egypt um so it's not surprising to me that these same patterns of imagery keep occurring. But what is interesting to me is that I've never stopped prior to this week to sort of think of these elements in the story of Job as being connected in some way to the sorts of images we see in apocalyptic literature. And, and yet, now that we're sitting here and looking at them, they are so, so similar. Mm. And, and it, it kind of makes me wonder... And I don't know if any of us present know anything of this, um, or anybody does really. But you know, when was Job written, and for what audience? Because it is very much, it is very much apocalyptic literature. It opens with the apocalypse for Job, anyway, and well, then it continues another... on with a long discussion about the meaning of it. There's there's another similarity, and my previous comment was only going to be that I. I sometimes have a powerful wind, um, which causes bodily affliction. But I, that's probably less than helpful. Um, there's another element, though, which is similar, which is that um, in Daniel and in Revelation and in Job, the people caught up in these circumstances are a part of something bigger. Mm. Um, and that's that's, and this becomes the sort of central factor um of the story i noticed that we finished with the verse uh that the last of, of verse of chapter one which states that uh in this job did not sin nor did he charge god with wrong hmm. so there's two things that god, job hasn't done he hasn't sinned and he hasn't charged god with wrong and then hmm. at chapter two after he gets the boils he says to, to his wife, um, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips, but he has charged God with wrong. <laughs> and this is... And, and th that, that then sets the stage for the book of Job. Is Job correct to charge God with wrong? I mean that, that's that's the question that's under debate. Well, and, this... and what is it? What is it? What's the difference between charging God with wrong and sinning? Because I noticed and it's not actually a section we read we read, but it was before it, right at the start, um, in verse five. So where verses four and five talk about how Job's sons and daughters would would 
have social gatherings together and sort of do a round robin uh, of their houses and, and feast. Um, and then it says in verse 5, when the days of feasting had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. That's the sons and daughters. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. <laughs> Thus Job did regularly. So he's, offering, he's making these offerings on behalf of his children in case mm. they have sinned, which here is described specifically as cursing God in their hearts. Right. Hmm. So how do you assert that God has done wrong without cursing God? And because cursing God is a big thing in Job, everyone, he's advised at one point, yeah. curse God and die. And, and, and it's the thing that he refuses to do. So that, that's obviously what the adversary, the devil, is trying to get Job to do. That's how the, the devil wins this game that's being played. And Job doesn't do it. But as you say, Cam, he certainly asserts, you know, towards the end of the story, directly to God, that God has wronged him. Well, this is this is, I think, the the uh, the point of difference between Job and Revelation and Daniel is that, um, although we know as the reader that this suffering was not God's idea, Job is never told that. Mm. Whereas the picture that at least as the Adventist church that I grew up in has painted Daniel and Revelation is very clear, uh, sort of great controversy imagery of, of there being sort of demonic forces at work and um, they're responsible for all the bad stuff. So in Revelation, you, you have the beast and you have the the harlot and the Daniel, you have all the horns, mm. big, big and little and... and uh, whereas in Job, at least from Job's point of view, it's just God. Yeah, except that mm. it is the adversary. Uh, so that that's a commonality. That the difference is that it's that the difference is that he's told. But but in the end, the, mm. the it's the adversary who's behind them both. Right. But but God permits it, I believe. Oh, that's, sure. That's how Job, sure. Job describes it. Yeah. So the adversary can do nothing that God does not permit. No. But the, this book's not written by Job. Mm. Job doesn't know that it's the adversary. We know because we're reading the narrative, but but Job doesn't know. And and Job never finds out. Either. Job never finds out. He, he gets to the end and he says to God, you know, how is this possibly just? And God basically says, there's no possible way for you to know that and I'm not going to tell you. But it is. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you'll just have to accept it. And Job for all we know, does. I have to say, I have to so say that's, that's another um, uh, correlation between Job and Revelation because most of the time the things that I'm told Revelation is saying, uh, if I were to question them, it seems the answer would almost inevitably be, well, you've got no way of knowing, but this is just how it is. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, they're, they're, well, isn't it interesting? Well, I you mean, can, are there any... You can, go, you can go even further than that. You can, because uh, very often that sort of statement comes along with the assertion, but, you know, it definitely does mean this. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas I think what's, what would be more accurate to Job would we say we don't really know what revelation means, uh, I but it means it means something. Yeah. Uh, uh, can you help me with this? Um, where is the, what is the passage in Revelation or elsewhere that we rely on to say 
one of the uh, aspects of the seal of God is that you won't be able to uh, buy and sell and, you know, that the, in contrast to the mark of the beast, and, you know, we've, we all know that bank card was going to be the mark of the beast and um, uh, that, that uh, internet banking was going to be the mark of the beast and... Um, uh, but where where is that idea that there's this? Um... It's Revelation thirteen seventeen. Right. Okay. Um... Ah, so no yeah, one could yeah. buy or sell unless he had the mark. Well, it's a, it's a, here's a, here's another um, uh, attack on economic prosperity of the faithful people. So there's another there's another mm. correlation. One um... might suppose in a world saturated with, um, you know targeted online advertising where algorithms you know learn your own spending profile and you know at any moment of any day where you know two taps on a screen away from purchasing something one might suppose that being unable to buy or sell might be a bit of blessed relief (laughs) (laughs) i don't think it was that way for joe Yeah, but I suddenly had a thought on that that I'm going to go away and think about because you're not meant to buy or sell on the Sabbath. Is it is it making a statement there that's connected to the oh, Sabbath? I don't well, know. there you go. That's an interesting. <laughs> I'll reflect on that. There, there is a similarity, though. I think even even if you do accept the great controversy narrative that the devil's out there doing lots of bad things, you do ultimately have to say, yeah, but God could have stopped him and didn't. Uh, mm. So there is a sense in which Job and and the sort of narrative of Revelation are in sync in that sense. And the picture we get at the end of Revelation is that the people who are in God's presence, the, the end of time people in the New Jerusalem and whatever, seem to have come to more or less the same conclusion that Job does. Their conclusion is not, oh, now I understand everything and it makes perfect sense. Their conclusion is, oh, isn't mm. God awesome? Mm. Yeah. That's a good observation. Mm. I was gonna, I was gonna make a comment. It, it's occurring to me there aren't actually all that many passages in the Bible that have what we would call sustained or vivid images of Satan. Um, there are just a handful. There is obviously here the accuser in the opening chapters of Job. There is the devil's temptations of Jesus in the desert in the Gospels. There is um, in a bit more poetic representation there's little horns and beasts in daniel and there's um beasts and dragons and um the that serpent uh you know in revelation and of course there's the there's the serpent in genesis um in the garden and of there's Eden. the uh, yes, there's any? the lion uh you know roaming around to seek mm. might devour um yeah and and there's Everyone... and there's the fire of the <laughs> of the fiery darts um yeah yeah well if you i mean it's interesting that's another interesting detail in which to sort of group some of these things together because basically what you've got is the very start of time is difficult to describe and invokes um in biblical language invokes a sort of narrative about an anti-god the very end of time in Revelation and sort of in Daniel <clears throat> uh, are evoking the same sort of thing. Job 
vividly, we're, we're identifying, we're, we're hypothesizing, claiming here that it, it sort of fits into a similar pattern. Um, and so then there's just one exception, which is the, uh, the event of the incarnation, because that's the, that's the extra category uh, around which we see this vivid descriptive sort of narrative storytelling. And just while I'm thinking in, along those lines, isn't it fascinating that the book of Daniel famously starts with the stories and then goes on to the prophecies and the book of revelation starts with letters to the churches and then goes on to pretty wild imagery and the book of job starts with story to suck us in before going for page after page after page i mean i contend very few people have read the book of job past chapter three um in much detail and it it's interesting isn't it that the just as a literary structure, it's the same. Open with a story, get you a little bit connected to some characters, and then go a little bit a little bit all over the place in terms of the sort of breadth of images and ideas. It suddenly becomes more of an impressionist painting and less of a of a children's story. Mm. Mm. The impressionist painting is a it's an interesting analogy, like um I was uh, read one of Tolkien's introductions to Lord of the Rings recently, and he um, he was very frustrated with people who wrote to him with the assertion that the Lord of the Rings must have been a commentary on this or that. It was a commentary on World War Two, or it was a commentary on this, a commentary on that. He said, and he said, no, it's not a commentary on anything, and he he said that he doesn't like he didn't like allegory. He liked stories to be applicable widely applicable so a good story mm. is applicable in lots of ways he said but the difference is this in an allegory the author decides exactly how and where okay. each concept should mm. be applied whereas whereas in a well-told story that is not allegory where the, you know if the point is labeled so strongly that you can't help but interpret this as that um mm. that's allegory and the author's made that choice for you in a well-told story that contains truth the reader is invited to look for ways to apply the story. Mm. And so maybe I, we, I propose that we follow that example with Job. Well, yeah, and maybe with Revelation too. Maybe we're a bit too prone to get sucked into the allegorical way of thinking, which is this means that and this means that and this means that and this means mm. that and you mm. connect the dots and then everything's made clear. Well, that what you've just said takes me right back to uh, a comment that I believe I made on the podcast much earlier this season where I, I just suspected that revelation is at its most useful when it is catalyzing and fostering ongoing conversation. And it's at its least useful when it is being invoked as... An end the of the conversation. The of the textbook. Yes. Mm. I, I think you're quite right. I was, I was just thinking the reason I, I suggest that we do it with Job is because as you were saying, Cam, I was immediately saying, well, okay how then can I apply the story of Job? And the mm. first one that jumps out immediately is, well, it is not a sin to ask God why bad things have happened. I think mm. that is a tremendously useful application for the story of Job for anybody of faith, because the number of people I know who have been told that if you become a Christian and you believe in God and you keep the Sabbath and you do all of these things, everything's going to be fine. Hmm. And who have completely lost their faith at the first personal tragedy because what they were told was a lie. It's not true. and they But they didn't have a way in their faith to question God. 
Hmm. because they've been told that you shouldn't do that. It's not just that we tell people that everything will be fine. Sometimes we acknowledge that there'll be tough times, but we do kind of imply that everything will make sense. Hmm. That when when something bad happens, when something bad happens, you will see it as part of some greater plan, which will Hmm. be enough to satisfy you. And the, the whole point of Job is... He says, no, there's, I'm not satisfied. Yeah. And as we've commented, never that, that tension is in the book of Job never really resolved. It's long bothered me. How easy would it have been when God finally does step in to speak later in the book of Job? It'd be just so easy to explain. Hey, Job, this is, this is the story. We were all meeting in heaven yeah. and so on and so on. Just chapter one yeah, and chapter and, two. And we actually, and I knew that you'd pull through. Um, and so, yeah. uh, look, I mean, it, it, it was it was because you're such a good guy um, that I that I let this happen. Um, yeah. And, and I know it's been hard, Joe, but thank you for basically making my point. Um, well done, good and faithful yeah. servant. Well, this we do spell a narrative um, of a sort of end time narrative where when we get to heaven, everything will make sense. But Job is, not oh, sat- a- Job is not satisfied because, in retrospect, everything makes sense. He's satisfied because he's found God. Look, and that's his, that, look, that is just such a critical point, Cam. I, I really think this is it. We so much want things to make sense and we look for ways to make sense. Uh, we're not promised that it will make sense. Indeed, we're told about things that we're told. We, Paul talks about the mystery of Christ. Um, uh I think what we are, what is suggested, and I say this with great hesitation, because I can understand how people would could say, I can't see how this could ever be true. Um, but I think what we are told is that it, whether or not it makes sense, it will be worth it. Mm. Um, so I think that's what the what the key is. And the other thing I would say about that is, that requires, in many cases, I expect, um, although I think for me, I'm one of the people who Jesus talks about and says, well, you've received your reward in this life. Um, uh, but I think for, for, for many people, it requires an eternal view. Um, uh, mm. It is not something that will necessarily be worth it here and now, in our using our traditional metrics, particularly our economic metrics and our um, comfort and safety and security metrics. Um, uh, but it is worth it with God. Um, and God is what makes it worth it. And indeed, that's, I think, the message of Psalm 23. You know, I, I lack nothing. It's mm. not that I do not have any need. Um uh, it's that all my needs are fulfilled by God and that God is, um, uh, it, it is worth it for God. That's a story of the, of the pearl of great price. It's the, uh, and the pearl of great price isn't necessarily the truth, except in so far as the truth is the person. Um, mm. uh, so, yeah, I think, Cam, you make a really, really good point, and I think it's one that can... Uh, pull in so many other illusions from scripture. Mm. Look, uh, this may be a red herring, but I have thought of and found another passage that describes a, a meeting in heaven. 
Um, oh yeah. It 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 it's. I'm trying to see whether it's an analogy. It's it, it's one of my sort of favourite moments. I think because um, I like the image it persuades. There's not a lot in common, but it might be worth sharing anyway. Uh, this is Ahab and um, Jehoshaphat. And um, I think it's Ahab, isn't it? It's Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and uh, the king of Israel. Oh, now I'm... Yeah, it is Ahab. Run with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely Ahab. Um, and uh, they want to go to war together, and Jehoshaphat says, well, we should ask God first. And um, so they assemble 400 men and they say, shall I go and fight? And the, they, all these 400 men say, go, um, the Lord will give it to the king. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, um, there's yet one man. Oh, but Jehoshaphat says, well, these 400 men, are, they're prophets. But are they are they prophets of God? Is there any prophets of God around? And Ahab says, yes, but I hate him. <laughs> he, never, he never prophesies good things about me. And then, <laughs> and then, the, so they summoned this guy, and this is Micaiah, and um, Micaiah is warned in advance. The messenger who goes to summon him says, "Look, the words of the prophets with one accord are favourable to the king. Uh, let your word be like one of them, and speak favourably." And Micaiah says, "Well, I'll go, but I'll only say what God wants." And um, so he comes up to the two kings. The two kings say. What should we do? Should we go and fight? And uh, and uh, Micaiah says, "Yes, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the into your hands." Um, and then Ahab says to him, "Look, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak me nothing but the truth?" And Micaiah says, "All right, you got me. Uh, you're all going to be destroyed." <laughs> <laughs> and then the, and then Ahab turns and says to Jehoshaphat, "See, see, he never says anything nice about me." Which is funny because Micaiah just has before he changes his mind, and then um, and then Micaiah says this: "I hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, hmm. By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, uh, and, and God said, uh, you shall certainly succeed. Go out and do so. Uh, now, therefore, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these 400 prophets because um, the Lord has declared disaster for you. And the king's not really pleased. That's... But there are actually some interesting analogues here. In the, in the story of Job in this heavenly meeting, God is certain that Job will stand fast. And in this depiction here from the prophet Micaiah, God is certain that Ahab will fail. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, as you read that story, it's excellent. Uh, as you read it, I can't help thinking it's quite pertinent to the topic of deceptions uh, that we were t discussing in our, recent, in our last episode. Um, because, because what is being described there is exactly um, the sort of schemed, foreplanned systematic supernatural deception that Adventists are so on the lookout for in the last days. Um, mm. So it's, it's quite interesting. But this one comes it? from God and it's for the purpose of deceiving Ahab, apparently, as, at least as the story reads, um, <clears throat> uh, which is interesting. Uh, it also speaks, though, to this concept of surety, of good things, because the whole story mm. is predicated on 
should we go and do will it turn out okay hmm. um and which has been the theme of our discussion so far and what's implied heavily is that ahab knows that it might not turn out okay Mm. And he says, oh, I don't want to ask this guy. He always says bad things about me. And then the prophet turns up and says, oh, no, it'll be fine. And Ahab says, no, no, tell me the truth. Tell me the truth. <laughs> all right, well, you're all going to die. Ah, I knew it. See, he never says anything nice about me. There's sort of a there's a, yeah. there's a strong sense in which as those words leave Ahab's mouth, they are, they are totally condemning him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, to what level of surety are we entitled? Um, is is an interesting question. If and this is the this turns up in Jeremiah as well, where Jeremiah prophesies doom and gloom, and the prophet turns up and says, "No, no, 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 everything's going to turn out okay." Mm. We're God's people, and the thought occurred to me: if you stood up and said, "God has decreed it, Adventism as a movement is going to die out," and then someone else stood up in church and said, "No, no, 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 we're God's people, it's fine." Um, I am pretty certain which way the most congregations I know would lean out of those two Mm -hmm. messages. Now, it's not to say that the second message is false, uh, but it might be. And if we're we're so blinded that we can only accept good news about our collective Mm. identity, then that's a real worry. I mean, what Job says, if anything else, is that you, you just have to learn to cope with a bit of dis- dissonance. Yeah, well, I mean, that's exactly, that's what's that's what's the accuser um, levels at God, right? Of course, this guy follows you. That's because his life is a dream, right? Everything's going well for him. Um, and the story of Job tells us that while struggling pretty hard with this stuff, Job does, in fact, stay plugged into God, even when things really don't continue going well for him. Will you, given the time... Uh... Would it be possible, do you think, for me to just try and pull a few of these things together? Yes, um, Ken, we've been missing... Please, please do. We've um, been missing this over the last the few podca- weeks. The, the podcast hasn't ended well since you were last on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just pick up on a couple of things. Um, uh, themes from our discussion um, previously, uh, as they've come together. Cam, you referred to the prophet Isaiah. Um you referred to the um, uh, to the lying spirits that came out of the, uh, the from heaven down to the mouths of the of, of the prophets, and they would do very well. Um, mm. uh, and uh, we spoke about we it may not make sense. Indeed, it may not make sense, uh, and I'll come to this in a moment. Not because it is not sensible but because it is something even beyond our imagination um uh and that in the end god is our treasure so uh, some of those things i'd like to pull together in this way um perhaps a little eclectically isaiah 53 a, a famous passage in contrast to ahab's experience with the prophets uh isaiah 53 verse 9 um, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, in contrast, similar to Job in terms of suffering, but verse 11, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Hmm. I will divide 
the spoil. He will divide the spoils with the strong. Um, uh, so there is a success and a satisfaction uh, in that success. Um, in terms of whether or not it makes sense, um, I then come through to Ephesians chapter 3, one of my favourite passages from verse 14 to the end, but particularly at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. If it makes sense, we can imagine it. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, or if we can imagine it, we can make it make sense. Um, but this is beyond our imagination. This is beyond sense. Indeed, it is... Um, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So something that, that is even beyond making sense. And then we come back to Revelation. Um, and it's, in fact, one of my favourite um, uh, scenes uh, in Revelation. And it's the, um, uh, it's the throne room in heaven in Revelation chapter 4. And the ones who are closest to God, those amazing, unimaginable creatures, never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They see his value. They see his beauty. And the 24 elders um, lay their crowns before the throne and fall down before him who sits on it and say this. And here is the treasure. You are worthy our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Beyond our imagination, not something of which we can make sense, uh, but something that is of that is satisfying and worthy, the treasure that is God, the glory of God, and that glory is his mercy. Thanks, Ken. Uh, we will leave it there. Uh, we are nearing the end of this uh, quarter. Uh, next week, I think, is a continuation of the Mark of the Beast. Um, at it is, about uh, that... but we may well find that we have another um, tangential thought to follow. I've thought of a couple. <laughs> I've, I've, all... as, as the conversation has progressed, um, I was just noting, because one of us made the comment that, you know, a lot of people don't really read past Revelation chapter, um, sorry, Job chapter 3. And I've just been doing a little of it, which is why I might have been a bit quiet <laughs> towards the end of the podcast. Um, and there's a lot in it. Um, so there may be more. Uh, I well, Certainly, if it's not next week, it should be at some future point. Um, more detail on Job. Because did you know that in addition to his three friends, there is a fourth character who speaks? Ah, I didn't. Aside from God and Job. Aside from God and, and Job. Oh, is it his wife? Is it his wife? No, not his wife. It's a young man. Oh. I don't know why he's I don't know why he's there and where he comes from. <laughs> but after the three friends have had their say, he speaks up and he rebukes oh. everybody. And then he just disappears from the narrative. It's quite right. fascinating. Good. Well, maybe that our, our conversation might lead in that direction. I think certainly the comparison between Job and Revelation has been a fruitful one, Locke. So thanks for um, for bringing that idea to our attention. Uh, to you, our dear listener, yeah, well, that's right. 
Um, to our dear listeners, thank you for spending this time with us. Uh, feel free to share this podcast with anyone who you feel would benefit and uh, join us again next week.